some people will argue like you, God couldn't take my soul and put it in a desk because uh, for, for various different reasons, right? Maybe there's like an essential property of me that's like, you know, I can't exist in desks or something like I, I'm a, essentially a human being. And so my soul can take on a human form. Um, what, what do you make of that type type of uh, argument? Or do, do you think that God could take my soul and put it in a desk? Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. This episode is another very special one. I have with me Dr. Brian Cutter. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Notre Dame. And we're going to be talking about, uh, again, we're going to be talking about whether it's possible for robots to have souls. We might get into some of his other works on uh, it, the an inconceivable inconceivability argument against uh, physicalism. And then, I don't know, I don't want to say too much because I don't know where this conversation is going to go, but it's going to be awesome. We fill mind. We're definitely going to get in on robot souls. I love that topic. And um a lot of these guys on Facebook have been changing my mind on whether robots can have souls or not. So I'm very excited to jump in with Dr. Cutter here. Before I do, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen over on Patreon. If you personally have benefited from this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can find the link in the description wherever you're getting this episode at. Uh, another way to support the podcast, if you're watching on YouTube, is to give me a super thanks. And that's like you can buy me a cup of coffee or whatever. Um, just to say thank you above and beyond just to support the podcast. That would be huge as well. And then another really cool opportunity is to go to my merch store. Let's see if I can pull this up better. Okay. So my merchandise store where I have lots of new designs. Chasten Han has been working with me and uh, just amazing, amazing stuff. We have uh, the proper pronunciation of Ponce's here for those who hate the way I say it. We also have the based version, Pensies, the way that uh, American swine like me pronounce it. We got brain stash stickers, all sorts of cool stuff. So check out the merch store. The link is in the description again, wherever you're finding this. And you can support me and local artists like uh, Jason Hahn, who's awesome. So uh, there's some ways to support it. But without further ado, let's bring in Dr. Cutter and let's get in on substance dualism, souls, and whether or not artificial intelligence robots could have them dr cutter thanks so much for coming on the podcast man thanks for having me good to be here i've i've really been appreciating uh your work on facebook over the years as i've uh seen you and just recently you you put like this is like a journal article it's it's really a fan, fantastic and really fascinating but you just put it on facebook for a lot of your philosopher friends to consider and I've been thinking about this as well so uh, i'm really excited to jump in on whether or not ai uh whether you think or we should think AIs can have souls. Before we did that, though, I, I wanted to get a little bit of uh, personal information on you. How did you get into philosophy in the first place? And then what made you want to become a professional philosopher? Well, let's see. I mean, I've, I've always been pretty philosophically minded from a very young age. I mean, I can remember as early as elementary school having kind of inchoate philosophical thoughts and gravitated towards philosophically minded people in hmm. high school and yeah, so, you know, when I jumped into college, I very I was, I was very eager to take philosophy classes. I had already 
read a little bit of philosophy, the Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and some stuff hmm. by Daniel Dennett and Douglas Hofstetter that I really liked in high school. Um, so I took some philosophy classes in in college. I I initially did not plan on majoring in philosophy, even though I knew it was I, I knew I was interested in it. Um, mainly just because I kind of had pegged philosophy as a kind of canonically impractical uh, mm. major. But then I found that I just loved the philosophy classes so much more than any of my other classes. And so I, I went ahead with it and loved it so much that I decided probably imprudently to, to go to grad school <laughs> in philosophy and things fortunately worked out on on the job market. And here I am. Yeah. Today. Uh, I forgot, where, where did you do your um, dissertation at? I went to University of Texas at Austin and uh, worked oh, awesome. with uh, my, Michael Ty and Adam Pouts were my two uh, co-advisors there. Nice, man. That's awesome. What, what was the topic of your dissertation? So it was about um, consciousness and, uh, let's see, I, I believe that the title was uh, Sensory Experience and Sensible Qualities, something along those lines. So it was okay. about kind of the, the metaphysics of sensory consciousness and the metaphysics of sensible qualities, which are the kind of directly perceptible qualities presented to us in, in sensory experience. Sounds awesome, man. I, I'd love to take a look at that sometime. Uh, I wonder, I, I forgot where Sainsbury's at, but is, is he at UT Austin? Yeah, he's at UT, or at least he was when I was there. I believe he's still oh, there. Oh, cool. Too. Love that guy. He's, he's uh, hopefully he's going to come on again soon. Oh, great. And yeah. This is, this is so, I love it. It's so cool. But um, what made, so you did your dissertation on like philosophy of mind type stuff. Um, why, why'd you pick mind when there's so many other things to, to be thinking about? Um, the mind is the most interesting thing in reality, um, yeah. is I guess the, the short answer. I mean, mind was also uh, one of the big strengths of University of Texas at Austin, which mm -hmm. was another factor, but that was also uh, 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 one of the reasons why I went there. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess I've, I've, I've always been very fascinated by really big picture metaphysical questions. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, at various times in my life, been drawn to materialist views, but also found that like consciousness was a big hurdle towards accepting materialist views. And since, yeah, questions about the metaphysics of mind seem to be kind of the 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 draw the key battle lines for broader metaphysical questions about the nature of all reality. Uh, mm -hmm. I guess that's that's kind of what why I was drawn into those those sorts of questions. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay. That makes a lot of, I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think that's yeah. totally right. That's huge. Um, and then I, I guess before we get on substance dualism stuff, do you, do you find yourself holding a particular view? Like, are, would you call yourself a substance dualist or where are you at? 
Um, so I definitely reject materialist accounts of consciousness. Okay. I, def I definitely accept some kind of dualism about consciousness, at least in the minimal sense that uh, conscious properties, states, processes are distinct from over and above physical processes in the brain and that sort of thing. Okay. Um, I'm somewhat more agnostic between kind of substance dualism and mere property dualism, but I... Okay. But I, I, I lean at least relatively strongly towards uh, substance dualism. Nice. Um, yeah, though, though I think the, the considerations that support at least a kind of property dualism, I find more decisive than the considerations that from there would lead one to, to opt for substance dualism over property dualism. But I do think that there's uh, marginally better reason to accept substance dualism over a kind of mere property dualism. Nice, man. I love it. It's a good start to the to the show here. Um, okay, well, so in in one of your uh, one of your Facebook posts here, you uh, argued that we should have at least like a middling credence that uh, a functionally human like AI uh, would have an immaterial mind. Um, mm -hmm. First, I guess just for the listeners and maybe for me too, like what what do you mean by middling uh, credence? What, what what should we take that to mean? Yeah, so a middling credence means a credence that's not, so a credence is just kind of your level of confidence in a proposition. How likely is it that you think it's true? A middling credence is a level of confidence that's kind of vaguely in the middle, not really low, not really high. So yeah. um, you have a middling credence in something if you think it's not extremely likely to be correct and not extremely likely to be incorrect. Okay. Um, and 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 I, I believe the conclusion of the the argument that I posted was that we should have at least a middling credence. Um, I, I I don't think I argue that we should have at most a middling credence, though I I suppose I also think that that's true. That that's not something that I argued in that particular. Oh, okay, yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, my, my, at least my own level of confidence is is very middling. I mean, I it would be artificial to to put precise numbers on it, but you know, somewhere in the you know. 20% to 80% range roughly seems, okay. seems reasonable to me. Okay. Yeah. And again, that's for a functionally human-like AI. That's right. And, and then, um, so you give this just uh, like two-step argument. And the one is that uh, it's an analogous case if we met a, a, a alien. There we go. Jeez. If we met an alien that, that was um, functionally human-like and we could you know, maybe even speak with it or it had a translator or whatever, it looked like it was an intelligent being, um, then we would uh, have reason to think, at least a middling credence, that it's, um, it has an immaterial soul. And that would be like step two. Just, maybe I'll let you uh, uh, lay it out for us a little bit better than that. Does yeah, that so that it was, it was meant to just be a kind of simple two premise argument for the conclusion that we should have at least a middling credence that that uh, a functionally human-like AI would have an immaterial soul. First of all, this is all conditional upon the assumption that uh, we right. ourselves have immaterial souls. Of course, that's controversial. A lot of people would reject that. I'm setting those issues aside right now. Basically, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to people who accept substance dualism or something like that uh, about human persons and then raising the question, how how confident should we be that um, the, the same would be true about functionally human-like AI? Yeah, and so then, as you said, the, the the first premise is, look, if we met seemingly intelligent aliens, 
extraterrestrial life forms that pass whatever behavioral tests you like for intelligence. Maybe they have language and complex society and civilization and, and, and so on. But let's, let's, let's assume that in terms of their material constitution, they're very different from us. Maybe they're not carbon-based life forms. They have some like different kind of molecular constitution. Uh, maybe they're made of green, green goo or whatever. The, the, the key point yeah. is that they behave and function in ways that kind of abstractly resemble human beings. But when it comes to their low-level material constitution, they're very different from us. And, and, and the claim is, if we met such aliens, uh, we should have at least middling credence that they have immaterial souls, at least conditional upon the assumption that we do. And I, I believe in the post, I didn't really say anything to argue for this. I, I find in conversation that pretty much everyone wants to accept this claim. This just seems very intuitive and natural to a lot of people. So I think most of the action would be in the, the second premise. The second premise says, well, um, if, if that first claim is true, then we should also have at least middling credence that uh, functionally human-like artificial intelligence has an immaterial soul. So functionally human-like means roughly, so first of all, it behaves in kind of human-like ways. It passes whatever behavioral tests you like for yeah. general intelligence. It can perform any behavioral task, uh, at least at, at, at the human level. It can carry on conversations. It can fold laundry. It can play chess, at least at the human level, and, and, and so on for, for other tasks. And uh, you know, somewhat more specifically, if we look at its more detailed causal organization, let's just suppose that it resembles human beings at a kind of abstract level of causal organization. So you might have this if you created an AI that was implemented via a detailed simulation of a human brain. So yeah. maybe the, a, a large artificial network of neurons where the connections between neurons and the artificial neural network are somehow isomorphic to the connections between neurons in a human brain. So this would be um, th this would be an artificial intelligence that is as um, human-like in abstract functional respects as it's possible to be, but still implemented on a, on a physical computer. So the, 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 the thought is, if, if we accept soulhood in the alien case, we should accept AI ensoulment, at least for these functionally human-like artificial intelligences. And the argument for that second premise is, well, prima facie, there's a very nice analogy between the alien case and the, the AI case. In both cases, they resemble us in kind of abstract behavioral and functional respects relevant to our mental lives and differ from us at a kind of in terms of their low level material constitution. Mm -hmm. And if you think that differences in low level material constitution aren't enough to dismiss alien ensoulment, then you should also think that that's not a good reason to be dismissive of AI insolment. And so the challenge for people who do want to be dismissive of AI insolment, who are very confident that functionally human-like AIs would not have immaterial souls is what's the relevant difference between, between aliens and, and between the alien case and the AI case. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you give, you give some of those differences. I want to talk about those, but real quick, I just wanted to, um, you you said that most uh, substance dualists uh, ought to affirm one, or just will affirm one, or maybe from your own uh, experience have, and I think I think that's because it, it mirrors the uh, like a multiple realizability argument, like from from Putnam against the the type, at least the type uh, identity theorists, where it's like, look, you know, our our dog uh, has pain states, 
and even though it has different neural circuitry and you know maybe they don't have c fibers maybe we don't even have c fibers because everyone always points to c fibers but who knows what the what the real mechanism is um but yeah like like an alien uh that all all this uh the multiple realizability has shown like I, I think pretty pretty uh strongly that type uh type identity theories are are false and then token ones are kind of like a functionalist theory though i know some some token folks would say no um so you're just doing that same move but for the substance dualist and saying like well look why why wouldn't we think that if there was an alien and i think um i've well there's a couple other objections that that i want to deal with um like some maybe some theological ones about like being image bearers of god type stuff that come from the theological circles but first maybe we could we could uh yeah we could get in on yours um you say that two two main ones ai isn't alive and then ai aren't uh art, are ai are artifacts and right. for some reason being an artifact like precludes ensoulment so uh yeah what what are these arguments like well yeah can you flesh them out for us yeah so the the challenge as i said for those who are dismissive of ai ensoulment is point me to the relevant difference between the ai case and the alien case and then yeah so here are two things that i often hear as candidate relevant differences so uh, one thing I sometimes hear as well, the, di- the key difference is that the alien is alive. They possess life, um, whereas the, the artificial intelligence, well, it's a mere machine. It is not a living thing. And then presumably the background idea here is something like life is a precondition for ensoulment. Mm-hmm. Only living things are eligible for possessing souls. Um, so the reason there are a few reasons why I'm not really convinced by by this particular response. Um, so first of all, like, hey, I just I just don't see a ton of reason why we should accept that life is a precondition for possessing an immaterial soul. Um, I mean that that could be right. I I can't rule it out. I certainly can't rule it out conclusively, but. I, I personally don't think that we have very strong reasons to accept that. So, you know, if, if, if we don't have strong reasons to accept that life is a necessary condition for ensoulment, uh, then I think we just can't be dismissive of the hypothesis that uh, a functionally human-like AI would would uh, have an immaterial soul. So, so that's, that's the first thing. Um, the second point is a little bit more subtle, but it's, well, I'm actually not totally convinced that an AI wouldn't be alive, right. at least in the sense relevant to, to this particular response. So um, it, it might help to distinguish two different views of life, a kind of reductive view and a non-reductive view. So according to the non-reductive view, which I take it is probably the dominant view among philosophers today, it's certainly the consensus view among naturalistically minded philosophers. Uh, According to the reductive view, uh, to be alive is just a matter of performing sufficiently many of the physical functions and behaviors characteristic of paradigm cases of life. So um, being alive is not some extra special ingredient that some physical systems have. It's just a matter of doing things like 
reproducing, metabolizing, maintaining homeostasis, growing, things like this. So okay. if you exhibit sufficiently many of the features and functions characteristic of paradigm cases of life, then you count as alive. That's just all there is to being alive, according to this kind of deflationary or, or reductive view. Um, now, if, if you have that kind of view, I think it's it's certainly questionable whether an AI would be alive. I mean, it has a functionally human-like AI may exhibit many of the features and functions characteristic of life. So it may engage in a kind of reproduction by kind of cop making copies of its own code. Oh, um, right. yeah. It may engage in a kind of like metabolic process. It's constantly maybe taking in energy and using that energy, um, mm -hmm. you know, you, with different physical mechanisms than takes place in life. But but th th there is a kind of metabolic process there. Um, it may involve various kind of homeostatic control systems that are functionally analogous to those involved in, in living things. Um, so there are at least like a number of kind of the, the characteristic features and functions of, of, of life may be present in, in the AI. So I would say it's at best a kind of verbal question whether mm. the AI is alive. Like we could talk that way if we wanted <clears> to, um, or, or we could define life in a way that excludes the AI. But once you get to the point where you think like, well, it's, it's just a kind of purely verbal or terminological or semantic question whether the AI is alive, then life sort of doesn't seem like a good candidate for being a necessary condition on installment because presumably it's not a merely verbal question whether the right. AI has, has a soul. So on, on the other hand, you might accept a kind of um, like a non-reductive, more metaphysically inflationary conception of life. So uh, a lot of Aristotelians, I think, have, have this kind of conception of life. Um, some like vitalists where being yeah, alive- I was going vitalists. Yeah. Kind of like Alain Vital, which is like a non-physical force that's responsible for the physical functions that we observe in living things. So so, so that's, that's another view you might have of life. Um, but I guess I think if that's your view of life, you shouldn't be very confident that an AI lacks that either. Because huh. um, after all, you know, these Alain Vitals or whatever kind of like non-physical ingredient is responsible for life. It's not the sort of thing that we can just directly observe. We can't just kind of peer in and check whether it's present. We we presumably get at it by inference from observed yeah. behavior and functioning. But as we've seen, the AI exhibits a lot of the characteristic behaviors and functions associated with life. Um, and now, like at this stage in the argument, someone can't just say, Oh no, because like there, there's some kind of like carbon specific signature for life, or you know, so there, there, the, the, like the, the 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 physical signs or symptoms of the Elan Vital are something that like is specific to our like physical biochemistry or something like that. You can't really say that if you accept the first premise of the argument because you've already granted that. Um, that an, an an alien can be ensouled, where by stipulation the alien has very different. Uh, mm -hmm physical biochemistry. So I guess I just want to say, like, even if life in some sense is a precondition for ensoulment, it's it's not at all clear that um, that functionally human-like AI would not count as being alive in the relevant sense. Yeah. And that first premise is so, so gold because uh, it's, you could think of all sorts of different creatures, like a, a, a gas cloud, you know, yeah. no, and it's, but it, it lights up or something when it, when it's speaking to you, there's all sorts of amazing, really cool things you could do. Uh, to to look at that, or you know, uh, bring up like an octopi or something, octopus, octopi. 
yeah an octopus um and and like or a cuttlefish and how they you know communicate in all sorts of crazy weird ways now just make it sentient in the same way we are Mm -hmm. um i love that i think another thing about the life being a precondition it seems like it kind of gets the substance dualist view backwards because i think a lot of substance dualists want to say it's the soul that's doing the enlivening yeah when you die the soul leaves the body it'd be really weird to think that the soul uh is gone but the body's still alive and you might bring up a case of uh, like a vegetative state or something but in that case you have like an artificial soul doing the enlivening in that it's you know the all the machines doing that what what the soul was supposed to do and you don't have to go in for like a weird vitalist uh move because the soul you know this it's the soul that's doing it not some you know vital force unless you want to say that is a soul but in that case it's a little bit different than a spooky vital soul uh vital source thing um, so yeah, it just seems like it seems like the life as a precondition is getting it backwards. But maybe maybe I'm wrong there. Do you know are there substance am I wrong here? Yeah, what do you think? Well, no, I so I think that's a good point. I mean, there there of course is a tradition of I mean that with within the Aristotelian tradition, yeah, the, the term soul is just used as whatever it is that's responsible for the life of living things, the first principle of of, of life among those. It's like the formal cause, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And so, you know, if, if, if that's how you're thinking of soul, then there's a kind of analytic connection between having a soul and being alive. Right. right. Um, in which case, well, of course, you can't be alive if you don't have a soul, because a soul is just kind of defined as whatever it is that's responsible for life. Yeah. Um, but if that's how you're thinking of it, then, well, I guess it looks a little bit question begging to... <laughs> In, in the current context, to assume that a soul is not present, because the, the or, or or rather to, to to assume that the AI is not alive, because yeah, if if being alive for you just means having a soul, then you know that's just the question under consideration right now. Right. And, you know, so if you say that the thing is not alive, i.e., it doesn't have a soul, my my question is like, okay, well, I think that 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 that's just exactly what we're arguing about. Um, yeah, so 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 that's uh, the the first thing to say there. I mean, my my focus here has been, you know, you, uh, within the Aristotelian tradition, people will still distinguish between souls of the kinds that maybe plants have and animals have, and uh, immaterial souls of the kind that we have, where some right. of the operations of immaterial souls don't involve a bodily organ, and in that sense, they're they're immaterial, um, and. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I am, I'm speaking about the, the immaterial kind. I'm, 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 I'm interested in the question of whether, you know, functionally human-like AI would have souls of the kind that we do. And so, if yeah. you, you think that that's the immaterial kind of soul that's relevantly different from plant souls or animal souls, that that's the kind of soul under consideration here. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. It's it's like whatever that thing is that is uh, conscious. That is conscious, like in in us, whatever that may like, because I'm yeah, I'm glad you brought up the Aristotelians because some of them might just go, oh no, false, because I think it's the intellect or something like that. And it's like, well, okay, if that's what you mean by it, that that's what we're we're meaning by soul or mind or you know, different people have different conceptions, but like whatever is, I, I think whatever is experiencing the phenomenal, you know, uh, qualia and stuff, right? Like that's that's what we're trying to pick out here, isn't that right? Yeah. So. Um... Certainly, I think, well, if 
if you accept substance dualism, you should accept that possessing a soul is probably the thing that's responsible for your capacity to experience qualia and maybe exhibit other mental properties like thought and free choice and and and, 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 and other things like that. Um, but so certainly there's there's a tight connection between your soul and your mental properties. There's a question as to whether the soul is the bearer of the, the mental qualities or whether it's merely that by which you have the mental qualities. Um, huh. And I, I, I'm not really meaning to weigh in on that particular debate. So one, okay. one alternative to the view that it's the soul that possesses the mental qualities is the idea that, well, what you are is not just the soul, it's kind of a composite of body and soul. And the soul is that in virtue of which you're capable of having these qualia and thoughts and feelings and, and free choices and thing, things like that. Um, but it would be incorrect to say that the, the soul is the, the bearer of those things. Um, okay. Yeah, I, 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 I'm meaning to remain neutral on, on those sorts of issues. Okay. Okay. Yeah, this is, this is, this is gold, man. You helped me level up here. Um, so then we have the, uh, the natural kind, or sorry, the artifact uh, worry. I was going to bring in natural kinds as an objection too, so I I accidentally showed my hand there. But yeah, we have the the uh, artifact worry. Yeah, so maybe I'll say a little bit about that. So one one thing I've heard uh, quite a bit in in conversation from from people who are totally dismissive of the idea that an AI would have an immaterial soul is this claim that well, AI belong to the category of artifact. And artifacts are ineligible for ensoulment. They're not the right kind of entity to 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 get a soul or yeah to, to, to possess possess an immaterial soul. And I guess I'm not very convinced by this particular response. So first of all, I I don't think that there's anything very metaphysically deep about the artifact non artifact distinction. So I, I, I think it would be wrongheaded to give that distinction a ton of weight in our theorizing about the metaphysics of mind. Uh, one, one reason why I think that is that whether something is an artifact is largely a matter of its causal history. Something's an artifact when it's intentionally produced by people in the right kind of way. But it's very natural to think that whether some matter receives a soul is purely a matter of what's going on with that matter at that time rather than its causal history um yeah. which which could involve things you know very deep in the distant past here's here's an argument for for that claim um or he, he, yeah yeah so here's an argument for that claim um i think you know in principle you know maybe sometime down in, in the far future we'll we'll get to the point where we can create kind of from scratch, building up molecule by molecule, individual human embryos or human fetuses. And if you think that human embryos have immaterial souls when they're kind of naturally produced in the normal way, then I think it's 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 very plausible to think that if we made one of these from scratch, molecule by molecule, physically identical to a human embryo and kind of let, let it gestate in the normal way from there, that it also would have an immaterial soul. Um, mm. But notice that the the embryo kind of created in the lab from scratch in the way I described. I, I guess I, su I, I suppose that would count as an artifact because 
by hypothesis. It's human beings who are intentionally putting the parts together in, right. in, in a certain way. Um, it's, it, it certainly satisfies the normal historical criteria for artifacthood, and but you know it has it, it would plausibly have an immaterial soul uh, it, it, if we do. So that's an argument that whether something is an artifact cannot be the decisive factor as to whether it, it has an immaterial soul. Um, now you might say, well, no, I've got I've got some more heavyweight notion of artifacthood such that the the lab-created fetus doesn't count as an artifact. Um, but now I want to say, okay, well, if, if, if being an artifact is not just a matter of being intentionally constructed by people, then, and like some, some further condition is, is required, then A, I want to know what that further condition is, and B, I want to know like why you think the AI meets that further condition. Right, like maybe right. like if, if the lab-created embryo doesn't count as an artifact, well, I don't know. It seems like totally open that maybe maybe a functionally human like AI wouldn't count as an artifact either. Yeah. Well, man, there's so many good things here to say. This is all this is all gold. Um, yeah. It seems like uh, what's the what's the like what's the precise thing that's being picked out? So if it's a if you're building up from scratch a human uh, and and it does receive a soul. And it's not an artifact. I think maybe someone would say it's not an artifact because you're like tapping into the natural kind person, uh, and, and maybe just by accident or whatever you, you you're making an isomorph of a human, but you don't know at you know you you can't give a uh, precise point at which now it's a human being or anything like that. You just accidentally tapped into a natural kind. But if that's yeah. if that's the the case, why think that like the human being is the natural kind and not like uh, an immaterial uh, soul, soulish thing, you know, because like, because then right, it would it would move right over to the AI machine. Like you you made this AI. Why aren't you just tapping into the exact same like soul making metaphysical principles or you know nomological principles, whatever that give rise to soulish things? So like then you'd have to pick out the natural kind and say no, we're picking out humans instead of uh, ensouled things. Just, you see what I'm like gesturing at there? Yeah, so that that makes sense. So yeah, one one thing you might think is, okay, well, anything that belongs to a certain kind, a certain maybe natural kind, um, that's the, the, those are the things that get ensouled. Yeah. But then the question arises, as, as you're saying, okay, but how broad is that kind? If right. it's broad enough, it might include the AI. Yeah. One way of thinking about this is, well, the, the relevant kind is individuated by its kind of functional and behavioral propensities. So anything with kind of functional and behavioral propensities appropriate for expressing a mental life, you know, like, does it does it naturally have the kind of behavioral uh, behavioral powers of the kind that would be needed to express a mental life? Those are the things that are eligible for souls. That's the relevant natural kind. But if that's the relevant natural kind, then a functionally human-like AI would belong to the relevant kind. So there's certainly an epistemic possibility that the, the natural kind that makes something eligible for soulhood is for, for, for ensoulment is narrower than that and excludes the AI. Maybe it just includes Homo sapiens, um, or maybe it's a more disjunctive thing that would include Homo sapiens and the aliens, but somehow sidesteps the AI. I mean, that's certainly a possibility. That's why I'm not totally yeah. certain that a functionally human like AI uh, w w would have a soul. 
but I guess it just seems to me that there's no very strong reason to think that whatever kindhood requirements are at play here would exclude a, a functionally human like AI. Yeah, that's good. I I really like this. This is this is really fascinating. I, I initially was so taken by arguments against functionalism that I thought, well, you know, just yeah, functionalism's false, or or it doesn't say enough about what consciousness is, so it's kind of bunk. Uh, and therefore, you know, robots can't can't think because they don't have souls. But, uh, you know, folks like you and like Kenny Boyce uh, on Facebook, of all places, have have totally like opened my mind to this idea. Um, I wonder what about uh, what about some people will argue like you, God couldn't take my soul and put it in a desk because. Uh, for, for various different reasons, right? Maybe there's like an essential property of me. That's like, you know, I can't exist in desks or something like I, I'm a, essentially a human being. And so my soul right. can take on a human form. Um, what, what do you make of that type type of uh, argument? Or do, do you think that God could take my soul and put it in a desk? Um, I, I, I don't have a strong opinion on, on that particular question. I guess I lean towards a no answer when it comes to your particular soul. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important to distinguish the question of whether your or my particular soul could be joined to a desk or a rock or whatever, yeah. um, or, or, or an alien's body or an, in, in a, a computer or, or what have you. Yeah. And the question of whether those physical systems could be joined to some soul or other. So, it, yeah. so it might be the case that, um, your soul has certain essential properties. It's essentially joined to a human body if it's joined to any material system at all. Yeah. But it doesn't follow from that that um, other material systems that aren't human bodies you know, like can't get other kinds of souls. So, um, you know, in, 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 in just the way that some, some people think that you, you couldn't have uh, been been the offspring of anyone other than your actual parents. Yeah, but it doesn't follow that people other than your actual parents can't have offsprings. I mean, they, <laughs> right. they, they they just won't be you. Right. So so it so it could be that like my soul is essentially a soul of a human body, and so it couldn't be put in an alien body or in an AI physical system. Um, yeah. But but it could still be that those those other material systems could be joined to other kinds of souls. Okay. Yeah, this this came up for me. I think I think planning a gave like a conceivability type argument of saying like I can conceive that God, that I could wake up as a cockroach. Um, does that does that ring any bells for you? Did you, do you remember him? Yeah, saying that? Uh, I I know in the his book, The Nature of Necessity, he considers the question of whether Socrates could have been an alligator. Yeah, and that's I right. I, from what I recall, where he comes down on that question is. In one sense, yes, and in another sense, no. Okay. Um, he, he, Socrates' soul could have been joined to an alligator's body. So in that sense, Socrates could have been an alligator. Um, but Socrates' soul couldn't have been a material, couldn't have been an alligator body because I think immaterial souls are essentially immaterial for, for planting. I, I, I think that, that he, he okay. comes down with something, right. okay. with something like that line. But but. Yeah, from what I recall, I think Planninga is is open to the possibility, the, the metaphysical possibility of human souls being joined to 
uh, non-human bodies like alligator yeah. bodies or cockroach bodies okay. or, or whatever. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess my thought is there would be something inappropriate or unfitting about our souls being joined to cockroach bodies um, yeah. be because our souls naturally have powers that could not be adequately expressed uh, with cockroach brains and bodies and behavioral repertoires yeah. um but whether it's like metaphysically impossible for god to miraculously do that kind of thing i guess it's that's that's less clear to me okay okay yeah that's good man i, I like it so I, I just that that comes up because i think of like this you know a top down versus a bottom up uh understanding of like insolment like top down being god could God, you know, take my soul or take a soul and put it wherever he wants is a different question than than like the AI question, which seems to be like baked into the concept of AI that us human beings are building something from the from the ground up, mm -hmm. um, which becomes ensouled or not. Um, so that the, the bottom up one is uh, is what we're trying to pick out, not not. But, but with the bottom up one comes like the natural order of things, right, where it's like. There'd have to be some kind of mind-making law or soul-making laws in insolment uh, principle that we'd have to like tap into, right? Like it would it would have to be part of nature, and there'd have to be souls. I don't know, like lined up or something, ready to go. Like, in, like I just think of it like a vending machine, right? Like there's <laughs> souls, and then this one is, you know, some principle is instantiated or level of complexity, and then a soul goes to it. So I guess just what would the story be? Because I think some people might might say that, like, well, it's just so implausible. That my I can't even have a middling credence because there's no story on how insolvent would take place or what the world would have to be like for this to happen. Good. So that, that, that's a great question. So there's one way of taking that question where it's just an argument against substance dualism in general, even for oh, us. Uh, yeah. But but again, all this whole argument is conditional upon substance dualism being true for us. So let's yeah. let's grant that and first ask the analog of that question for the human case and then just see how we could just say precisely the, the, the same thing for the, yeah. the AI case. So in the human case, here's just something that happens in reality. It's a wonderful thing and it happens and it's maybe very mysterious, but here's how it goes, assuming substance dualism. Um, Human eggs get fertilized by human sperms, and you know, like let, let let's assume insolment happens at conception. You could tell an analogous story if you accept uh, delayed insolment. Um, so matter gets configured in the form of a zygote, a fertilized egg, and that is either the cause or the occasion of a soul coming to be joined to this particular material system. Now, okay, yeah. how, how, how does that work? Uh, well, there's there's one theory, kind of like emergentist dualism theory yeah. that says mm -hmm. that kind of latent in matter is the causal power, the natural power to generate immaterial souls when arranged in the right way and including in the way that they, matter gets arranged in a fertilized egg or in a later stage embryo or fetus or whatever you like. Um, that so that's you know that's that's a view sometimes called emergentist dualism. Here's a non-emergentist dualist view that I am a little bit more much more partial to. Um, it's not so much that the matter itself naturally has the power to generate immaterial souls. Rather, the material configuration is something more like the occasion of God deciding to create and 
create an immaterial soul and, and join it to this material system. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, think of what occasionalists say about all causal interactions in the material, in, in, in the natural world. That's what's true when it comes to the, 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 the creation and creation of souls and, and, and ensoulment, um, according to this picture. So on this picture, there's some kind of, you could call it a, a, a divine policy. God has a policy to the effect that when matter gets arranged in a certain way, I'm going to create an immaterial soul and join it to that material system. Um, yeah. Now, like, in a, you know, we could ask like whether that's a kind of hard and fast policy or whether it admits of exceptions, but it's at least like a a, a a relatively hard and fast regularity because we think that, you know, in just about every single case where a human is conceived, that gets a soul. We don't think it's like 30% of the time or 50%. Uh, we think like, you know, every yeah. every every human being has, has an immaterial soul. So there's some kind of like policy or deep regularity here. Um, okay, now... Let's consider the AI system. If you think that uh, a functionally human-like AI would would be unsold, then you think that basically the same story goes there. God has a policy to the effect that when matter gets arranged in a certain way, and maybe that's a way where the physical system has what it takes in terms of its functional and behavioral repertoire to adequately express mentality. Okay. I don't know the story as to what, what 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 exactly the conditions are, but there's some material conditions under which God has the policy of when those condi material conditions are met, God is going to create an immaterial soul and join it to that material system. And so for those who think that, who, for those who accept AI ensoulment, they just think, yeah, the material conditions are met in the case of a functionally human-like uh a functionally human-like AI. So just to be clear here, the view would not be that we in creating the AI, the AI thereby create an immaterial soul. On this yeah. picture, we don't have the power to create an immaterial soul. We just have the power to move matter around and arrange it in different forms. Yeah. So what we do is move matter around in a certain way that is then the occasion for God to create an immaterial soul and join it to that, 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 that bit of matter. In just the way that if we kind of made this kind of lab created embryo that I was describing earlier. We move yeah. atoms and molecules into a human embryo like shape. Um, I think that an immaterial soul would then be joined to that embryonic body. It would not be strictly correct to say that we created the immaterial soul. What would be strictly correct is we were causally responsible for the material conditions, which were then the occasion for God to create the soul. That's 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 sweet. Well, so if I'm tracking you, I think um, the if, if if we're going with the cause route that that uh, you know assembling the the mar uh, molecules in a certain way is the cause. That's like to me that seems like uh, the view tradition. Maybe it's not traditionism because traditionism is like you get your soul from your father or some or your mother. Um, but it's like that kind of view where it's like yeah, we're we're causing that we're bringing this about, and the occasion is like creationism where it's like you know you just brought about this uh situation but god will you know he still has to act in a in a uh divine intervention type way of, of adding a soul we don't create them he adds them but I, and i forgot the language that you used it was really good language like god has uh it's not a law it's it was like a i, I said policy policy yeah 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 and the policy would be like analogous to a natural law. Like if there's just some natural law that he set up and it's metaphysical law that if when these conditions, then a soul is created, that's just the analog is like, no, it's God's policy to do it. He could refrain from it. Um, and maybe he just chooses not to or something. 
Yeah, and and I would be comfortable calling it a law. Um, I think some people might be more squeamish about that description just because they think of laws as kind of summary descriptions of the natural causal powers of things. Mm -hmm. And according to this non-emergentist view, like no, 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 nothing in nature has the causal power to generate an immaterial soul. So, so, you know, if you think of laws as kind of descriptions of causal power, natural causal powers, that it wouldn't count as a law of nature. But if you just think of laws as something like descriptions of the robust regularities that we find actually hold, then I think it's, it's fine to call this a law. Um, but, you know, putting this within a theistic context where just like any other law, it's kind of up to God's discretion whether he's going to like act on it in any particular case. He could yeah. miraculously decide to to suspend the law and, 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 and that sort of thing. Yeah. So that's another like theological concern I hear from people when I'm talking about this. And they're like, you know, God just wouldn't allow that to happen. Or sometimes they even say like God would like just like not let the world go on that long. I don't know why people go with that one, but it just seems like intuitive to them. Like, no, God, of course, God wouldn't, wouldn't allow that. I, I don't know why. Maybe it's because like they think that we to, to have a, a conscious AI would be like an image bearer and it's in, somehow inappropriate for us to create other image bearers. Have you heard this before, Brian? Yeah. So I, I've heard arguments along these lines. I think there's, there's two different ways of taking them, mm-hmm. one of which I find more plausible than the other. So so one argument along these lines is it would be somehow a bad thing for us to create image bearers, um, you know, assuming that possessing an immaterial soul has something to do with bearing the image of God. Right. Um, and God wouldn't let this really bad thing happen. And so therefore, that's just not how the world is set up. Uh, I guess the reason I don't like that particular argument is it relies on the premise that God wouldn't allow some bad thing to happen, but evidently God allows a lot of bad things to happen. Um, yeah. Problem of evil, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so if, 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 yeah. So any argument of the form like X would be bad, therefore God wouldn't allow X to happen. I think we have, we have empirical evidence against that line of thought. A different line of thought, which allows for the possibility of it, but just weighs in on the permissibility of, of doing so, would just say, well, somehow it would be inappropriate for us to um, create or, you know, create the material conditions, which are the occasion of something bearing the image of God. I was actually talking to Alexander Proust recently about, about these issues about AI and Solomon. He's a philosopher at, at Baylor University, and he was pushing the line that if a functionally human-like AI would have an immaterial soul, then it would be morally wrong for us to create such a being mm-hmm. uh, because that that being would be a person. Person. The, the line of thought was something like that being would be a person and persons are sacred and where there's sacredness, there are restrictions on kind of what we can do sur- surrounding those things. And, and in particular, there are, there are moral limits on how we may permissibly um, create rational beings, rational persons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so he's, he's speaking from, from a Catholic perspective where those restrictions are, well, it's got to be through like natural sexual intercourse within the context of a marriage. Those are the only uh... conditions by which we can create rational beings. Uh, and so if we created rational beings like 
you know, at, at the, the Google DeepMind laboratory or whatever, like that, that, that would not be within the, 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 the context under which we can permissibly create rational beings. Um, so I, I think that that argument is, is at least interesting. I mean, I think, sure. you know, like most, a lot of religious people, a lot of Christians think that there are limits on proper ways of bringing human beings into the world and uh, probably creating AI fall outside those limits. Now you could say that like, well, those, those are limits on how we can create human beings. That, that's, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Other persons. Um, but I do think that Proust's thought is correct that like, it, it's a very morally weighty and serious thing to be just kind of willy nilly creating persons. Uh, and we should be very careful about how to do that. And, and I, I guess I do find some plausibility in the, in this idea that like, you can't just kind of create something <laughs> with that level of sacredness, uh, in, in a cavalier way, way, or, or, you know, or, or maybe, maybe not at all. Um, so, so that's one kind of moral consideration against doing it. Again, that's an argument, not that it won't happen, but that it shouldn't happen. Yeah. Um, I, I think there are, you know, there are a number of other moral arguments that we, we shouldn't do it. You know, one is that creating AI, I mean, this is the kind of classic, like Nick Bostrom style argument, uh, generally intelligent artificial systems, whether they're unsold or not, uh, yeah. pose, you know, potentially an existential risk to the human race because they, if, if they're much more intelligent than us, um, much more effective at pursuing their goals, if their goals are slightly misaligned to ours, that could be catastrophic with respect to human interests. And so that, you know, that, that would be another kind of human centered moral reason not, not to create these things. But there's also kind of like AI centered reasons not to create these things where like, I mean, like likely we're creating them in order to use them for some purpose. But now that starts to look a bit like enslavement because we're just kind of using these things as tools. But if they're, if they have the kind of moral and metaphysical status of persons that looks kind of questionable. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's all sorts of tough questions about how we may permissibly treat AI if, if they really do have the moral and metaphysical status of, of persons. Um, and there's an, there's another interesting point that, um, Actually, I think I got this from from Alex Proust as well. So he he pointed out that like when when we when we go through processes of deep learning, so this is the process by which large artificial neural networks are are trained. Yeah. Um, oftentimes that involves kind of like minimizing a loss function. So you know we 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 feed it tons of data and we we have it like perform in various ways, and it and it it, it gets negative feedback when it's not performing correctly or when it you know when it when it does a task incorrectly. Um, if this thing is like actually conscious, then mm. these negative reward signals are going to correspond presumably to subjective suffering because you know they're kind of the rough functional analog of of, 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 of suffering in us. Um, and so like it, it, we could just be exposing these beings to just absurd amounts of suffering in the process of, of, of training them. Yeah. Um, I mean, especially that's true if you look at like the sheer amount of data that goes into training some of these, uh, these artificial systems, like it's, it's, it's vastly more data than human beings get within their learning process. You know, like we can, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, just because human beings like learn much more efficiently than than uh, 
at least current artificial. oh okay okay i was thinking maybe the the reward would be more worth it because there's you know with more information in maybe more output out but you're saying we we learn more efficiently so maybe even for them to learn the same amount that we learned they're experiencing way more trials or hardships or pain even yeah yeah i mean at least that's true for for current ai systems i mean the the the, the amount of data that goes into like training these things and kind of calibrating the networks is yeah is is just gigantic compared to anything that that, that we ourselves get in in the learning process. Yeah. Um, now maybe that would be very different once we achieve something more like AGI. Um, but well, yeah, well, I wonder if you could just run. Like, that, yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. I wonder if you could just run like a soul building, yeah, theodicy there and be like, well, like literally, you're literally building his soul. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you might be able to to justify it because something maybe wonderful and splendid will, will will come out of the process but you know i i take it some, yeah. anytime we're we're doing something that's going to lead to massive amounts of suffering in a, a rational being that's that's a significant moral reason to not do that thing totally yeah yeah i wonder oh no i wonder if there's like an uh, anti-natalist argument looming right here you know where it's like maybe you shouldn't bring kids in the universe then because of the amount of suffering. Ah, no. Help me with that real quick. That's gross. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, of course, there's classic antinatalist arguments that by bringing children into the world, you're you're doing something that you're, you can be pretty sure will result in at least some suffering in your children and likely a lot because a typical life contains a lot of suffering. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I, I think that that's, that's not a good enough reason to, to justify antinatalism. I mean, maybe if, maybe if you had reason to think that your children's lives would be a kind of a bad thing on net, um, like it would involve more bad than good taken all things considered, uh, then, then, then that could be a good reason to choose not to have kids. But usually these antinatalist arguments don't rely on premises that strong. And I think, you know, in, okay. in, in, in normal cases, claims like that would be very implausible. Um, okay. That's good. That's that <laughs> me for a second there. Um, okay. So, so this whole, this whole argument is, uh, you know, predicated on substance dualism and some of the listeners are going, well, who cares? And so I'm, I was wondering if we could maybe go over one of your arguments for, uh, at least an immaterial mind or, you know, uh, mm -hmm. against physicalism. And that's sure. the, uh, your inconceivability argument against physicalism. Sure. Um, maybe briefly, uh, could you lay out, as you do in the paper, what, what the conceivability argument is, and, and then we could talk about how yours is different. Yeah, good. So the conceivability argument, uh, a very well-known argument for uh, against materialism, um, it has, it can take different forms, but basically the, the idea is this. Uh, first of all, you can conceive of uh, something physically just like me, that lacks consciousness mm -hmm. um, or that has different kinds of conscious experiences than I do. So um, most straightforwardly, we can conceive of zombies. So a, a zombie in the philosopher's sense is a being that's physically identical to, say, a conscious human being like you or I, uh, but that lacks conscious experience altogether. So it doesn't have a first-person perspective on the world. It doesn't experience qualia, subjective experience, whatever you want to call it. Um, this, I, this to me seems totally conceivable. There's no 
logical or rational contradiction in the idea of something being physically exactly like me down to the finest molecular detail, uh, but lacking any conscious experience at all. So that's the first premise. And then the second premise of the conceivability argument is some principle to the effect that conceivability is a guide to possibility. So if you can conceive of something being the case, that's at least evidence that it's metaphysically possible. So I can conceive of a giraffe standing on top of a library. And so that's evidence that it's at least metaphysically possible for a giraffe to stand on top of a library. Um, yeah. And, you know, the more clearly you can conceive of it without generating any internal contradictions, according to this line, the, 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 the stronger reason you have to think that the thing you're conceiving of is, is, is metaphysically possible. Um, okay, so then from there you get that it's possible for something to be physically just like me while lacking consciousness. And then we're supposed to get to the conclusion that consciousness, therefore, is something over and above my physical processes. It's something over and above my, my, my physical makeup, my physical properties, because if something could be physically just like me without being conscious, then it follows that um, my consciousness is something that goes over and above. It's something distinct from, something further than uh, just what you can capture in a purely physical description of me or my brain. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so that, yeah, that, that's the, con the conceivability argument. Okay. And, and I, I, if I'm remembering correctly from your paper, you're like, you weren't, you're not super moved by, by the conceivability argument. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I'm not entirely convinced by it. I, I don't, I don't think it's a, a horrible argument. I mean, I think to make it good, you need to make a, a zillion qualifications that I haven't gotten into here. I, I, yeah. and I, so, you know, D David Chalmers is the philosopher who's uh, given the most sophisticated and compelling versions of the conceivability argument. Um, his, his version uses a semantic framework that's called two-dimensional semantics. It gets a little bit technical, um, but it, it, it turns out that there are some pretty serious problems with the simple version that I just laid out, but that okay. the most serious problems can kind of be patched up with the more sophisticated two-dimensional two version of, of the argument. But yeah, I mean, that, 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 that would be a, a whole... Um, complicated thing to get into. I guess my, my thought on the conceivability argument is that it's 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 decent, but it's not totally convincing because ma mainly because it's not entirely clear that conceivability is a great guide to possibility. Oh, great. Okay, that's what I was just going to ask you because um, you know we we already mentioned uh, it seems like a metaphysical impossibility that I could. It's it's been claimed that it's a metaphysical impossibility that I could have different parents. But it seems like I could conceive of that. Um, and so I always have a hard time with like conceivability and, and metaphysical possibilities. When it comes to like, I don't know, even like logical possibilities. I don't think I can conceive of a square circle, but I don't know that no one else could, you know, and maybe that just. So, yeah, I just wonder about like metaphysical possibilities and, and, and conceivability and how good it is uh, a guide for for those yeah so the the case you mentioned well yeah i can certainly conceive of having different parents it might be an epistemic possibility for me that i have different parents than i initially believed that i did um that seems like a coherent hypothesis that doesn't involve any internal contradictions so but you know if you accept essentiality of origins you think that's impossible so right. so yeah that that that's a kind of classic kind of 
alleged counterexample to the idea that conceivability entails possibility. Mm -hmm. um, you know, an, an, another counterexample along these lines is it's maybe it's conceivable that water should turn out to be something other than H2O. Yeah, H3O or something. Yeah, like, yeah. H3O or XYZ or whatever. Um, but, you know, the standard view is that it's metaphysically necessary that water is H2O. So here it looks like we have something that's conceivable, water not being H2O, uh, but not possible. So again, yeah. counterexample to the idea that conceivability entails possibility. Um, I mentioned a minute ago that the more sophisticated versions of the conceivability argument, um, well, that, that there are more sophisticated versions of the conceivability argument, and without getting into the details, they put forward kind of restricted conceivability entails possibility principles. They say, okay. well, conceivability entails possibility, at least in this range of cases. And then it turns out that the that restriction is spelled out in a way that um, that, that 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 excludes the kinds of cases that you're worried about. Oh, nice. Okay. Out of origins, water is H2O, and so on. Um, okay. But exactly how to how to lay that out um, is is a little bit tricky. I mean, well, I mean, I, I can say for those for those who have the relevant conceptual background, usually the principle is something like. If something is conceivable and it's formulated in purely non-twin earthable terms, okay. then it's possible. And if nice. you don't know what non-twin earthable means, that that's probably they, they should. I, I've, I've, we've talked about twin earth uh, quite a bit, so yeah. yeah. And then it turns out, like when when I formulate the hypothesis that I could have been uh, born with different parents, then the twin earthable term there will be I. And when I consider water is not H2O, then the twin earthable term there is water. And so that's not covered by the relevant principle. But yeah. then it's going to turn out that, you know, terms like consciousness and terms for the, the basic physical properties, those aren't going to be twin earthable. And so the, the argument's going to go through under this restricted principle. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. So it's that's really cool. I'll have to check out Chalmers stuff more on that. Yeah. Um, by, the, by the way, I'll just yeah. say, kind of going back to our earlier conversation, uh, Chalmers is a great person to read on the issue of AI consciousness. He's not really a substance dualist, but he he accepts that or he leans towards a kind of property dualism about consciousness. And he also accepts the view that a functionally human like AI would be conscious. And so, like, if you if you look at his book, The, the Conscious Mind, he's got a mm -hmm. chapter, I think it's called Strong Artificial Intelligence, where he kind of lays out the case very clearly for this and, and, and also argues persuasively that the question of materialism about consciousness is just completely independent of the question of whether an AI would be conscious. And so I, and, and I think he's definitely right about that. Yeah. I, I think I remember somewhere him, him saying like he splits his credences between like, was it panpsychism and dualism or something like that? Do you... Yeah. So I think he's, um, you know, he's got some credence in property dualism, some credence in Rosellian panpsychism, uh, right. yeah, yeah, and also Rosellian panprotopsychism, yeah. So the, until he all, until he watches this podcast, and then you know he's going to get your inconceivably argument, and we'll bring yeah. him over to yeah, that'll be good. Well, so is so um, I'm assuming like, and I guess I've read your paper too here, but inconceivable inconceivability is is stronger than conceivability. Well, in, inconceivability is just the negation of. Oh, sorry, the inconceivability argument is. Yeah, not, yeah, yeah. So, so what I do in the in in the paper is put forward an inconceivability argument against materialism that is structurally kind of similar to the conceivability argument, 
but then I argue that it's a it's a better argument in the sense that like anyone who accepts the conceivability argument is going to have to accept my inconceivability argument. But the converse doesn't hold. So oh, you, nice. you could be convinced by my inconceivability argument while still having significant reservations of, of toward, towards the, the conceivability argument, which is kind of where, where I stand. Yeah. Um, well, uh, Brian, uh, Dr. Cutter here, uh, my, I'm tweaking out cause my battery's low, but my charger's right there. So I just have to step off real quick. Okay, yeah, it, yeah. Uh, yeah. Totally. Okay. Yeah. That was really freaking me out. Um, <clears throat> okay. So I have the, I just grabbed some premises here. Um, in case they're not on, on top of your head, but you said, uh, let, let, hopefully this isn't too hard on a podcast, but we'll let phi stand for an arbitrary collection of physical truths. And we'll let uh, Q stand for some phenomenal truth. Um, and so then, you know, a first approximation of the inconceivability argument is one, the inconceiv it is inconceivable that Q holds holy in virtue of phi. If it is inconceivable that Q holds holy in virtue of phi, then it is not the case that Q holds holy in virtue of phi. If Q doesn't hold holy in virtue of any collection of physical truth, then physicalism is false. Therefore, physicalism is false. Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, yeah, so maybe just kind of less less formally, more intuitively go through the, the premises. So, so yeah. the thought is, um, look, it's we can't even conceive of having conscious experience purely in virtue of some collection of physical facts. Like, it's not even coherently conceivable that I could have a sharp stinging pain or a vivid experience of pink purely in virtue of the motions of colorless insentient atoms. That's not something we can kind of rationally get a grip on. In the way that I can rationally get a grip on the idea of like a traffic jam occurring in virtue of the behaviors of a bunch of individual cars at the lower level. Oh, okay, yeah. so that's, that's, that's the first claim. And so that's a kind of inconceivability premise instead of a conceivability premise. And then the second premise of the inconceivability argument is a claim to the effect that inconceivability is a guide to falsity. So if something is kind of in principle, inconceivable, like you can't get a rational handle of, on what it would be for that to be the case, then that's at least evidence that it's not in fact the case. Um, so here, this is kind of mirroring the conceivability right. as a guide to possibility principle. My principle is inconceivability as a guide to falsity. Um, and then from here, you, you can do a little bit of logical wiggling around to get to the conclusion that, okay, so facts about conscious experience are not fully grounded in any set of purely physical facts, um, given, given those two, two premises. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Um, one, one seems like to me, I'm like, I agree. It's so it seems so strong. Like, how, how would someone argue against that? Like, could, what would a panpsychist be like? Well, no. If 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 every uh, little tiny molecule, you know, is conscious, it would. Hmm, you're you're talking. Yeah, help me help me out with it again. It's, um, how, how would we argue against it? I guess. Oh, good. So, um. The standard panpsychist view is not meant to be targeted by this argument. So okay. the panpsychist is on on my team, at least the, the standard form 
okay. standard versions of panpsychism, at, le at least with respect to this particular argument. So standard forms of panpsychism will say that consciousness is fundamental. It doesn't hold in virtue of anything more basic. It's one of the fundamental ingredients of reality. And then they argue that, well, you know, usually when we have fundamentality, we have ubiquity. So, you know, like mass is fundamental and it's all over the place. And so similarly, if we think that consciousness is fundamental, we should think that consciousness is all over the place, even in very simple physical systems. But, you know, you know so I, you know, I, I, I disagree with that, that last point. But on the point that consciousness is fundamental, it does not exist in virtue of anything more basic. It's just a, a rock bottom primitive ingredient of reality. That's basically just the conclusion of my argument, um, or okay. at, at any rate, my, my conclusion is, well, it's, it's related to that. But I mean, so that, that's, that's my view. So that's something that like the, the dualist and the panpsychist agree on that point. Consciousness is fundamental. The main thing they disagree is disagree about is how widespread consciousness is in nature, but that's just not. Oh yeah. Okay. I, I guess I, about. I'm always confused on like whether panpsychism like is a form of like property dualism or not because you know a lot of times at least like prominent proponents like uh philip goff will say um you know physics tells us uh what physical things do but consciousness is what they are and so it seems like you do get you know phi and q being I I identified there or it's like the, the physical facts just they, they are phenomenal facts yeah, so so that would be a view in which kind of like consciousness is the inner nature of the physical. So yeah. physics and other sciences only tell us the kind of abstract structural description of reality, but it doesn't tell us what intrinsically realizes that structural description. And then the, the claim from people like Goff is it's consciousness. Consciousness is like the stuffing for matter, the the the, the, the intrinsic nature of, of, of matter. Um, so that's a view that's not really my view but it's also a view that i'm not targeting in this particular paper okay. so I, I i i i say at some point i think early on in the paper that um we can distinguish between so-called russellian and standard forms of materialism where okay. the view i just described which is the philip goth view and often formulated in terms as a panpsychist view is the kind of russellian version of materialism. Sometimes it's called Russellian physicalism. Sometimes it's called Russellian monism. Yeah. Um, you could argue that that's a form of materialism, um, but it's not the form of material. It's at least a kind of non-standard form of materialism. And what I what I make clear in, in the paper is uh, that's not the kind of materialism that gotcha. I'm targeting in this paper, precisely yeah, because it agrees that consciousness is fundamental. It doesn't hold in terms of any more basic facts. What I'm targeting is the view that consciousness does hold in virtue of more basic facts that themselves do not involve consciousness. Facts gotcha. like mere motion of matter or the shapes of material parts or the mechanical interactions among components in your brain, things like that. Facts that don't intrinsically involve consciousness according to standard forms of materialism are fully responsible for grounding the existence of consciousness at the higher level. That's, that's the view that I'm targeting. Okay. Okay. Um, so when you, I take it that like a physicalist would deny one and say, well, it, it is conceivable that, uh, you know, phenomenal facts hold in virtue of, of physical facts. It, right. Like, um, is that... So, I mean, there are two key premises they I, I think either is 
just as eligible for for rejection on, okay. on the part of the the materialist. Um, I don't know if the first premise is going to be their more natural option. I mean, of course, it is. You know, it's it, it's an option for them to say that it's conceivable that phenomenal facts hold purely in virtue of physical facts. Um, but I, you know, so I, I argue against that in the paper. Yeah. Um, one, one thing maybe worth worth noting here is that the kind of conceivability I have in mind is, this is what David Chalmers calls positive conceivability, yeah. as distinct from negative conceivability. So negative conceivability is just like when you can't rule something out a priori. Mm -hmm. um, uh, then it's it's conceivable in the negative sense. So I'm not talking about negative conceivability. Maybe maybe materialism is is negatively conceivable. Um, positive conceivability is when you can kind of form a clear, distinct, positive conception of a situation in which that proposition holds. So roughly, it's like can you clearly imagine that situation holding, um, as as opposed to thinking like oh, maybe it could hold. I can't rule it out. That, yeah. that, that's what positive conceivability is. Okay. And, you know, I, I, I think you can, well, it, yeah, I, I, so I, I, I go through a number of arguments in the paper that like, actually like positive conceivability does not hold. It's, it's not positively conceivable that any purely phenomenal state holds in virtue of purely physical states. Um, but yeah, the, the, the argument for that is, is somewhat involved, but I think like, yeah. There, there's certainly a number. Well, a lot of people are struck by this intuition, and like Leibniz's mill might be taken as a version of, of this intuition that, like, you know, if if you imagine going inside the brain and perceiving its purely physical operations, um, it's not even conceivable that like a vivid perception of pink could be wholly constituted by motions of mechanical objects pushing against each other. Like that's we. For some reason, many people have the intuition that we just can't even get a rational handle on like what what that would mean. I mean, certainly, like you know, physical stuff might cause a distinct phenomenal state. That that right. doesn't seem particularly hard to get a handle on. But the idea that there's nothing more to a vivid experience of pink than just colorless, insentient things bumping against each other. That's a kind of a lot of people, including myself, get a kind of rational block there. Like that's not even clearly coherently conceivable yeah 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 that's really good so i'm trying to think like um i i just had a, a conversation with with um uh, graham oppie and uh, michael humor and oppie went in for like scales instead of levels of emergence and stuff so like mm -hmm. you know so so i i would imagine he, he might say something and and he is a um an identity theorist which i, I thought was nuts but he's He's uh, Australian and, like and all the identity theorist. Well, he didn't want to say that. Um, okay. He 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 wanted. I think he. Um, what what kind was he? Uh, I think he 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 went in for like the same view as Lewis, um, which I I thought was kind of like a type type, um, but it's yeah. a qual. It's a qualified. Lewis is a type identity theorist. Yeah. Yeah, and so so if he said something like in in scales, I think of like zooming in on your phone or something, like it, yeah. you're viewing at different scales. So what if what if an identity theorist says like yeah okay if you're zooming all the way in at the particle level or or super strings or whatever there's no color there but that's the wrong scale because we don't we don't observe things at that level we're all the way zoomed out at the the uh, human scale you know the the uh the manifest image scale and there we do per 
perceive colors uh, or however they would say right because depends mm -hmm. on you know are there other are colors or we just so yeah what do, you, what do you make about that, that that someone might say well you're just you're just looking you're talking about the wrong scale of things yeah so that's a a, a great question um I guess I would say there are a lot of cases in which behavior at a higher scale is grounded in behavior of among things at a lower scale, where mm -hmm. it's totally intelligible and clearly conceivable how it is that behavior at the lower scale gives rise to grounds the, the relevant behavior at, at the higher scale. So I don't know. one kind of simplistic example would just be like a traffic jam. So maybe you start zoomed out, you see this traffic jam on I-5 um, and you wonder like what lower level facts are constitutively responsible for this traffic jam? And you kind of zoom in and you see this individual car coming to a halt, causing this individual car coming to a halt and so on. Um, and you can kind of like zoom in and zoom out and it's, it's just totally clear. Oh, like here's how that high level thing gets grounded in the individual behaviors of individual cars. And if we wanted to, we could kind of go to, to a lower level. Like why is this car coming to a halt? Well, because this constituent atom is coming to a halt and this constituent atom is like, <laughs> like, it's, yeah. Yeah. We, like it's totally, I mean, of course it's, we with our finite minds might have a hard time kind of keeping it all in mind, but it's the kind of thing that, you can totally see how like an idealized Laplacian yeah. intelligence. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, Laplace's demon could get it. Yeah, like yeah. just a completely transparent vision of like how it is that traffic jam, this high scale, high level phenomenon emerges in virtue of the behaviors of individual cars and how that emerges from the behaviors of individual molecules and so on. Yeah. And my claim, and I, you know, I'm not idiosyncratic in this intuition, is that right. the emergence of consciousness from physical movements of atoms and neurons firing and, and, and this and that. It's just nothing at all like that. It's not at all intelligible in the same way how a vivid experience of pink or how a rational thought emerges from atoms banging into each other or patterns of neurons firing. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, so that's, this is a pretty core, I think, bedrock intuition. I think, it, I mean, it's an intuition that divides people not not everyone agrees with it but it's not at all idiosyncratic um and yeah i mean i think a, a lot of people are at least initially struck by by this kind of intuition even if they kind of want to convince themselves out of it at the end of the day yeah well and i i love this because i i think um i think of like lewis's uh argument from reason c.s lewis's sorry there's so many oh, yeah. lewis's in philosophy and yeah, yeah. philosophy religion but yeah the, it kind of depends on a, on a similar um rational rational thought not being reducible to to uh the physics and and you're getting in on uh on phenomenal states you know and like quality and stuff sorry my my puppy was grabbing my cord so he he always makes a, an appearance here um so i i, lo I love it i i think i'm just thinking of where i don't i hate getting out over my skis and i want to use your argument so i'm trying to think like where it would be vulnerable um I don't want to just pull this out in the wild and then get hammered because I, I, I'm going to have to study more and, and learn it more and read your paper more. But where, where do you think it's most uh, susceptible? Would it, do you think it would be two then? Um, yeah, if, you know, if I were a materialist 
and I wanted to find the most plausible way of rejecting the argument, I think I would reject the the second premise, the one that says that if something is inconceivable, then that's a reason to think that it's false. Or I guess I could even accept that and say, but it's not a conclusive reason. Um, I mean, uh, I, 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 I guess I think the probably the most plausible thing to say in response is, well, yeah, typically inconceivability is a guide to falsity. If, if something is okay. inconceivable, inconceivable, that's some reason to think that it's false, um, but it's not conclusive reason. And in this particular case, we just have countervailing reasons on the other side that are strong enough. And then I would wheel out the kind of standard batter battery of arguments for materialism and say like, yeah, those just kind of defeat whatever prima facie evidence we had um, against materialism provided by the argument, yeah. um, you know, arguments about mental causation and Occam's razor and all, you know, all, all the standard things. And to that, I say like, that's a totally reasonable response. I mean, I never thought this argument or any other particular argument was going to give like a conclusive slam dunk, <laughs> like, like final blow to materialism. That's just not the way philosophy works. Um, of course, if you want to form uh, a responsible opinion on something like materialism, it's going to be a matter of the total balance of considerations yeah. on both sides. And there's going Good to point. be just like a lot of lines of argument and evidence that you're just going to have to kind of weigh in, weigh in the balance. And that, I mean, that's just the kind of like inescapably holistic nature of philosophy that, that, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, like any, any particular argument shouldn't have the ambitions of kind of taking you all the way, at least, at least with something as like fundamental and controversial as like, whether materialism is the correct metaphysical picture of the world. Yeah, we got to compare the theories, as yeah. Dr. Oppie often says. Yeah, yeah the, I agree. This is this is awesome. Um, I don't I don't think we we're going to have time to get into the psychophysical harmony, but I I just wanted to say that I talk with a lot of philosophers, and many point to this paper by you and Dustin Crummett as like one of the best arguments for theism out right now, and it's really intriguing and interesting. So, just want to pass that along, man. Like people love this paper. It's 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 okay. fantastic. Yeah. Good. Well, I hope more people will read it. I, I had a fun time writing it with Dustin. Dustin is an awesome philosopher. I think you, yeah. you had Dustin on recently. Yeah, right? earlier this week. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's been yeah. a, a mind heavy week for me. Okay. I, I, yeah. yeah. He's a, he's I also had Kenny Boyce to talk about this as well. So it's oh great. It's been a long week of mind stuff, which is fun. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Saw um. Well, uh, Brian, where can people find you? Uh, where can they find more of your work? Uh, let's see. I've I've got a website. It's a Google site. Um, if you Google me, I'm sure it'll turn up. Uh, yeah. Or you can get to it via the Notre Dame philosophy department page by clicking on my name. I also have a Phil People profile for those who know about Phil People that has, yeah. uh, I, I think, all of my publications on there. Um, yeah, so those those would be the the best places, and also just kind of feel free to to email me. My email address is on the is on my website. If you want to correspond about anything or have questions happy to happy to correspond awesome yeah i'll put i'll put those links in the uh, description wherever people can wherever people are getting this you can find those links as well um so thanks again brian this has been huge man it was just like a facebook post but it's uh really good thoughts and helped me like level up on some stuff so i seriously appreciate all your time and your work uh and i'm going to be diving in on much more of your papers because they're just so so fascinating so thanks for, oh. thanks for all you do and thanks for giving me your time today yeah my pleasure thanks for having me yeah. Have a good one. All right, folks, this has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.